let's pray as we start. Father God, we pray for us uh, this morning. Father, pray that you would speak through your word. Father, we pray that as we look in this story of Abraham, Father, speak to us uh, right here, right now, uh, in the 21st century. Father, help us to know how we might please you and glorify you. Father, we pray for our children and young people as well. Uh, Be with those teaching them. Father, pray that they would see the Lord Jesus for themselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're faced with a choice. Now, because I grew up in the 90s, I can't help but think about the film The Matrix when I think of choice. Uh, Do you know what I mean? There's a scene in The Matrix where uh, one of the characters holds out uh, two pills and the, the main character has to decide what he's going to do. I know that some of you are too young to remember The Matrix. Uh, I know that some of you are too old to be bothered with The Matrix, um, but uh, I think the idea of choice that comes across in the film is really excellent. It puts the idea really starkly, doesn't it? You've got one path, or you can go the other. You can take the blue pill, or you can take the red pill. But you must choose. You must make a choice. Well, in our passage before us this morning, we're given two different responses to the promises of God. We have Abraham, who gives us a positive response. And we have Sarah who gives us the negative response. And it's as though Moses, as he wrote this, is setting these before the original readers to choose between them. How will you react to the promises of God? Remember that Moses wrote this to the people who were wandering in the wilderness, to the wilderness generation. And God had made them promises too. Very specific ones about taking control of the promised land. The previous generation, well, they behaved appallingly and they disbelieved God's promises. And it was then that was cursed to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. So it's as though Moses is saying, what are you going to do? Which path are you going to take? Are you going to take the blue pill or the red pill? And we too this morning are faced with the same stark choice here in this passage. God has given us promises too, promises of forgiveness Promises of a future together with him. Promises that God is working for our good. Promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we are faced with the same stark choices. How will we respond to God's promises? Which path will we take? Will we take the blue pill or the red pill? So here are the choices as presented to us in Genesis. You can let God's promises change you or you can laugh at them. Oh, those are our two choices this morning. So firstly, you can let God's promises change you. Have a look with me again at verses 1 to 8. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I find favour in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sears of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. 
and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. What we see here in Abraham is a man transformed by God's promises. Abraham is sitting in the door of his tent when he spies far off travellers in the distance. It's not that they turn up at his tent exactly because he has to run to meet them. And he bows down to them and he implores them to come to his tent and be his guests. Now you might want to say, well this is fitting treatment for the Lord, isn't it? Because we find out this is God that he's speaking to. But at this point, Abraham doesn't know that it's the Lord. Why do I say that? Well, Hebrews 13, verse 2, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheets. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is almost certainly a reference back to this passage uh, in Genesis. Abraham entertains angels unawares, to start with, not knowing what he was doing, not knowing who they were. The impression that we're supposed to get as he sat at his tent door and sees these visitors is that this is what Abraham does for every traveller that he sees passing by. Perhaps that's why he sat at the tent door, sort of looking out to see people who are passing by. It means it's noon, it's the hottest part of the day. And it's lunchtime, isn't it, at noon? They clearly have water and provision because he's living under an oak tree. So they've got things to provide. And what he shows these people is outrageous hospitality. Outrageous hospitality. Now some of the commentators say that what follows is quite normal behaviour. That this is just how it was at this time in the Middle East. But I think that's very unlikely. If this were common practice, I don't see why Moses would take seven verses to explain what's happening. We get no details, think about it, of Abraham before he was called for the first, you know, 70 odd years of his life. We get no details of the last 13 years before this passage. And yet we're told what menu he served to his guests. That's a lot of detail to give when so much has been skipped over. I mean, it even tells you how much flour he uses. That's how much detail it goes into. There's no way that this would have been shared if it was of no significance. So I think actually we're supposed to see that this is something special that is happening. So what happens? Well, he offers them a morsel of bread in verse 5, doesn't he? Would you like a morsel of bread? I don't know, you're, you're sort of thinking that when the word is used elsewhere in the Bible, it's something you can fit in your hand. You know, it's sort of like a small piece. And what he brings them is not a morsel, but a feast. He brings them water for their feet. He offers them shade from the hot sun under the oak trees. And he gets Sarah baking bread. Three seers of flour for three visitors. Now I checked this out this week. I got Caroline to help with the sort of baking side of things. Uh, I asked at one of the coffee shops in town, you know how much they would use as well. So this is what it worked out. This is about four and a half kilograms of flour per person. So that's about 10 pounds of flour. That's more than a baby. If you think about it. Each. So the only thing I could think of is like when I've been to Indian restaurants and they, they say there's naan bread. And you, you know, some Indian restaurants, they sort of give you something that's about that big. And occasionally though, you go to one and they give you one that's sort of hanging on a, a sort of spike and is about that big. So you're talking something massive that he gives them. And that's just the bread that he gives them. Okay, so it's way more than really realistically you'd eat uh, for one meal. 
He gets more than that, though, doesn't he? He gets the calf and tells a young man to go roast it. And he serves them roast beef. That's basically what, what quickly cooking something is. But it's not just roast beef. There we go. That was supposed to happen now. This is roast beef from a calf that is tender and good, served with lashings of butter and creamy milky sauce, with a side uh, of artisan homemade bread made by the hands of a 90-year-old matriarch. Uh, it's enough there, really, to feed uh, a small army. Uh, that's what we've got. It's, it's luxury. That's what I was trying to get across with the, the music. It's not just any calf he goes and gets, is it? It's a good and tender one. It's like killing uh, the fatted calf, isn't it, almost? He gets some curds. He gets some milk. He goes out of his way to look after them. And as he goes to them, he calls himself their servant. So think about it. This is the great Abraham. And yet here he is. What does he do while they're eating? He stands by under the tree. You know, a bit like at those really posh restaurants where you get a waiter who just sort of stands waiting for your beck and call. I don't know, I'd go to very many posh restaurants, so that's what I've heard. You know, almost standing by for your beck and call. That's what Abraham's doing here. And this is outrageous if you think about it, for a man that we're told is so wealthy that his nephew can't live near him because they've both got too much stuff. This is outrageous for a man who only a couple of chapters before defeated the combined forces of four world empires. And here he is acting like a waiter to three complete strangers. And not only that, but at his own expense. He's paying for them to be sat and served. This is shocking behaviour. If this is typical behaviour in the Middle East, then book me a ticket. I know that they do show great hospitality, but not like this. Not like Abraham is doing. I think really, if you think about this story, the closest we get to this account in the rest of history is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, isn't it? Think about it. The father runs to meet them. He clothes him in the best robes and lavishes honour on him. He kills the fattened calf and throws a feast. In the parable, though, the father is God, isn't he? That's God welcoming people in. But here in our story, here in Genesis, this is Abraham doing this. But that should give us a clue as to what the author Moses is showing us. Abraham is becoming like God. His life is being transformed by the promises that God has made to him. There are many words that we could use for what Abraham shows at this point, isn't there? But let me just pick two that are closely related. What we see here is generosity and grace. And grace leads to generosity. Generosity on an incredible scale. Generosity like we've been shown in the gospel. Think about it. God owes us nothing. And yet he gives us everything. And that grace showed to Abraham, transformed him. His life became shaped by that grace that God gave to him. His life began to exude that grace that was shown to him. So here what we see is grace in action, in this incredible generosity that he shows to strangers. God's gracious promises changed Abraham so that he held his life and his possessions very loosely. He gave away what he's had, knowing, confident that he had a better possession 
coming uh, to him. And God's promises should change us too, shouldn't they? This is what uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Again, you see it on the back of your notice sheets. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us to, to, his, uh, to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. John Calvin wrote of this idea of partaking of God's nature in the idea that the image of God in holiness and righteousness is restored in us. In other words, there's a purpose for the promises that we are given beyond the content of the promises, so to speak. They're given to us to make us more into the image of God. They're given to us to make us more like Jesus, the true image of God. Receiving God's promises changes us, but not automatically. They change us as we trust them, as we believe that God really is for us and not against us, as we believe that God really has forgiven all our sin, all our sin, as we believe that God really does have that wonderful future prepared for us. Those promises change us like they changed Abraham. Now think for a moment how that should change our attitude to, to different things in our life. For example, the illustration we're given here really is hospitality to others. How does that affect how we show hospitality? How does the grace of God change us? Well, as individuals, how do we use our homes? <coughs> do we use them for God? Or are they our own little castle or our own little nest? Abraham's wasn't. He welcomed people in. Do we show hospitality to each other? I know that we do, um, but could we do it more? Isn't this something that we could be better and better at? I'm speaking to myself here as well. I know that we do it, but we could do it so much more. Do we show hospitality to others, our neighbours, our work colleagues, our wider family? I know that's kind of countercultural. It's not sort of the norm, is it, on your streets? But we're supposed to be a bit countercultural, aren't we, as Christians? We're supposed to be different. Abraham certainly was acting differently here. And what about us as a church? How do we show hospitality in a way that Abraham showed hospitality? After all, this is the household of God, isn't it? We welcome each other in. We welcome guests and visitors too, don't we? How do we show that Abraham style of hospitality? Well, again, I think we do this well, but I think we can do it better, can't we? I don't think a modern-day Abraham would serve two-week-old Aldi uh, own-brand digestive biscuits. Could you imagine if that's what he got out for his visitors? Or we'll keep them until someone eats them. I'm not saying we do that as a church, but I do know churches that do that. We might even need to look at filter coffee at some point. I know that's controversial. But that might mean going to set up earlier. There's all sorts of things that it would mean. But we want to be like Abraham, don't we? We want to be out of our way to be uh, hospitable to people. We want to be changed like Abraham, not to attract people with biscuits and donuts and nice coffee, but because the gospel makes us generous. The gospel changes us. And the gospel leads us to that generosity and grace to others that we see here in Abraham. 
Everything we do needs to be in line with the gospel. Everything we do needs to be in line with that gospel generosity that God has shown to us. And that would mean serving one another, doesn't it? Whoever we are. Just some things to think about in our own lives. But with these guys, though, it didn't turn out they were just anybody, did it? It turns out they were not just travellers at all. This is God himself. Now, some guys from the past have seen this as the Trinity appearing to Moses. You know, one is the Father, one is the Son, one is the Holy Spirit. Um, Some guys have said that it definitely isn't uh, that. Well, I want to say that both sides have some credit to them. But I want to say that this isn't the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're told in the next passage, in uh, 19 verse 1, that two of them are angels. So that sort of, for me, settles the, the argument there. And yet, the fact that three of them turn up does seem to hint at some sort of freeness of God. What I mean is there aren't 15 of them. There are not two of them, there are three of them. I think with New Testament glasses on, we can see this as a confirmation of the Trinity, rather than an appearance of the Trinity in in three persons. So it seems that the third traveller, the one that stays with Abraham in the next passage, really is the Lord himself. Now, whether that means this is an appearance of God the Father, or the Son, or the Spirit, or all three in one somehow, we're not told. It's certainly not that when the Lord is spoken of, that capital letters L-O-R-D, it's not that that's always Jesus, that's what Mormons teach, but that's not right. All three are just as much Lord. All three made the covenant with Abraham. So in one sense, it doesn't really matter whether the whole Trinity are here, or which person of the Trinity is here. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. So all that we need to know is it's God that's meeting with Abraham here. Why is God here? Well, he's here to update Abraham on what's happening with the promises that he's made. And he's here to see for himself the abomination that is Sodom and bring about its destruction. We're going to see that next time uh, when we come back to Genesis next year, God willing. But for now, we see the updates that God gives Abraham on what's happening with the promise. Because Abraham's response to the promises was to be transformed by them, but Sarah's response was to laugh at them. You could be changed by the promises of God, or you can laugh at them. Have a look at verses 9 to 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I shall return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. The other response to God's promises is shown by Sarah. She laughs at the promises of God. Now whether she laughs out loud is unclear. When it says she laughs to herself, it could mean, you know, in the way that if you... You're in a room by yourself and you start laughing. You're laughing to yourself. There's only you there. Or it could mean she laughed within herself. 
which I think is more likely. The word is the same as in later on in the passage, 18 verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, same word. Or later on in Genesis, Genesis 25, 22. The children struggled together within her. Uh, the idea that, that it's something internal. So it could almost be an internal laugh, if you like, that Sarah gives, that sort of snort where you don't quite laugh, you know. But it's a laugh nonetheless. God says so in verse 15. Sarah laughing forms the centre of this little section in the second half here. It's right put in the middle deliberately uh, with the promise that she'll bear a son, either side of it to sort of put it in the middle. So why does she laugh? Well, the simple answer is unbelief. She doesn't believe that she could get pregnant. And you want to say, well, that's understandable in a way. She lays out her case, doesn't she? Uh, She gives us three reasons why uh, she can't get pregnant. First is in verse 13. She's old. And she is old. She's nearly 100 at this point. She puts it almost humorously in verse 12. She's worn out. That doesn't mean that she's tired, you know, when you've had a hard day and you're worn out. It's the same word that's used of the shoes in the wilderness that never wear out. So she's sort of describing herself like a worn out shoe. That's really how she's uh, talking about herself. The second reason that she gives is in verse 12, that Abraham is old. He's around 90 at this point. Now, while men can bear children all their lives, it doesn't get any easier as you get older. And Abraham must be involved with this, must be involved with a child's conception Because it's going to be his physical offspring. It's not just going to be a sort of miracle baby that appears in Sarah's womb. Abraham is going to be involved. And then verse 11 tells us that Sarah has gone through the menopause. That's what it means by the way of women. No longer being with her. Sarah's no longer uh, menstruating. She's no longer having her period. Her body's no longer sending the eggs, if you like, that would be needed to conceive. So what it's telling us there is that even though lifespans were longer back then... The fertility of a woman did not stretch up to 100 years old. So she's not able to have children. So Sarah laughs. Now Abraham laughs in the previous passage, if you remember that from last week. But he laughs on a way that has him rolling on the floor. It says he literally gets down and, and laughs. It's the laugh of the lottery winner, as we said last week. It's the sort of, wow, this is, this is amazing. Sarah, though... It's an inner stifled laugh. It's the sort of laugh that a wife makes when her husband says he'll remember to put the bin out. You know? (laughs) It's the sort of laugh that a voter makes when a politician makes another uh, promise or a pledge. You know that laugh? (laughs) It would be rude, wouldn't it, to laugh out loud, but we still laugh. She doesn't believe that God can do it. And she's shown this a bit before, hasn't she? Remember, she was the one that suggested Hagar as a sort of shortcut plan for them getting a child. Whereas Abraham is comforted by God in his laughter, Sarah is rebuked. You see that in the words from 13 to 15, when God challenges what she said. Sarah knows she's messed up. She denies everything. Why? Because she's afraid. She knows that she did laugh. She knows that she didn't believe. She's afraid. And consistently, all the way through the Bible, fear and faith are held up as opposites. Instead of trusting in his promises, his promises actually have ended up producing fear in her. 
She's afraid of God and what he'll do. And yet, in the midst of all this, we get one of the greatest remedies for unbelief that the Bible has to offer. It comes in the form of a question in verse 13. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is an excellent question for us to ask in any circumstance in our life, in any promise that God gives to us. And it pulls Sarah up sharpish, doesn't it? Perhaps we should let it pull us up in the same way. But it's both a rebuke and an encouragement at the same time, isn't it? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So this morning, are you feeling that your sin is too much? How could God ever have accepted someone like you? Well, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is your sin too hard for the Lord? By no means, as Paul would say. God has promised that if we come to him in faith and repentance, he will forgive our sin. God defeated our sin on its penalty by sending Jesus to the cross. No sin is too big for God. He is Lord Almighty. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's dealt with our sin past, present and future. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or perhaps you're feeling that the Lord isn't answering your prayers. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now don't go and misapply this and go praying for Ferraris and jet planes. Not because it's too hard, but because it's not what prayer is for. Jesus promises in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John explains in his letter later on in 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We have a promise there, don't we? We can ask for anything in line for the purposes God has revealed in his word. We can ask for anything that delights God. Really, that's what it's saying. If we're asking for something that he doesn't delight in and doesn't delight to give us, then it's probably a clue that we shouldn't be asking in the first place. But that's not cruelty, is it? So it doesn't ask, matter how much my children ask, they're not asking at the moment, but it doesn't matter how much my children ask, I'm not giving them a 15-rated film. Not because it's too hard for me to go buy it, but because it's not good for them. But if what we're praying for aligns with the word... If it's something Jesus could ask for himself, then keep asking. Keep going. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Perhaps it's a family member that we long to trust in Jesus. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is any heart too hard for the Lord who holds the hearts of kings in his hand? Perhaps a relationship that's falling apart. Is anything too hard for the Lord who brought Jew and Gentile together? those enemies and made peace perhaps you're praying for the growth of our church is anything too hard for the lord who defeated empires with 318 soldiers who turned the world upside down starting with just 12 simple fishermen and the odd tax collector nothing is too hard for the lord that's the answer isn't it that's what he wants her to understand nothing is too hard for the lord so if it's good and right keep praying One more example. Perhaps you're feeling that your sin has too much sway in your life. A persistent sin you can't shake. Might be a short temper or a sinful habit or a cynical disposition. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
He promises in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under sin, uh, sorry, not under law, but under grace. Not that we'll never sin, but that sin is no longer our master. It's a promise that victory over sin in our life, in areas, is possible. Lust is not greater than the Lion of Judah. Pride is not more powerful than the Prince of Peace. There can and will be victories in our life. There's no promise of a quick fix, but there is promise that perseverance pays off. Our sin is not too hard, whatever it is, for the Lord to overcome in our lives. And there are a million and one situations you can apply this to, isn't it? I've just given you three. But let the word of God, the words of God here, bolster you. Is anything too hard for God? So often, can't we, we can be a cynical Sarah. But God wants us to be a big believing Abraham. Who not only believes God's promises, but whose life is transformed by those promises. In the end, there are only two responses, aren't there? We have to choose our response. We can be changed by the promises of God, or we can laugh at them. Are we going to take the blue pill or the red pill? It's that stark, isn't it? Which will it be? Well, let's pray that God would melt our hearts and change our lives by his promises. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have made us great and precious promises. Father, thank you that even though we didn't deserve them in any way, Father, you have lavished on us all these amazing things. And Father, we know that they are true because you have promised them. So Father, we pray that we would believe your promises. Father, we pray that we'd be transformed with them, uh, by them in our lives. Father, pray that they would make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, pray that the gospel would shape and mould us. And Father, we pray that you keep us from cynicism. Father, keep us from uh, unbelief. But Father, keep us going and trusting in your word. And Father, we pray that like Abraham, we would long for that heavenly country uh, that we're heading to, knowing that it's sure because you promised. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.